parents so choose, and the rest of us can go ahead and turn our Bibles to Psalm 77. This is our tenth part of this summer series. We have jumped around throughout the Psalter. We started off in the very beginning of that book, but have jumped around here and there. And this morning, we find ourselves looking at Psalm 77. It's printed in your bulletin on page 9, or you can turn in your own copy of God's Word there. Again, to the 77th Psalm. Allow me to read it for us. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. For your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. There's a term you might be familiar with called recency bias. Recency bias is a cognitive behavioral term that assigns the most importance to the most recent event. A favoring of recent events over historic ones, if you will. The practice of drawing conclusions more from the latest information rather than the largest amount of information. 
An example of this, let's say in a court of law, would be to assign disproportionate weight in your thinking, or let's say you're in the jury, to assign disproportionate weight in your decision-making on a lawyer's closing argument, the last thing you heard, instead of considering all the information as a whole that had been presented to you during the course of a trial. To maybe make it a little more lighthearted, recency bias is something that you also see in sports. It's something that happens when a player's value, let's say, is wrongly assessed or wrongly judged. A player will often earn himself or herself a very large contract or a very large contract extension based on their most recent performance. Let's say they, their team made the playoffs and in that small sample size of a few games that person really excelled or really exceeded and choosing to look at that small sample size rather than the whole of their career oftentimes teams are led to overpaying for a player assigning a disproportionate amount of value again based on what they saw last and latest versus what they saw over the course of one's entire career or a larger sample size now that's not to say people cannot improve right it's not to say that someone who starts off rough, whether that's in sports, whether that's in your career, whether it's in any part of life, that, that someone who starts off rough might indeed improve and might indeed finish well. Perhaps someone's most recent performance will be indicative of future performance. But the wiser course of action in any area or arena of life, again, is to take the largest sample size possible, the largest amount of information, and then draw a conclusion. To look at the whole picture, not just what have you done for me lately, but to look at the whole picture and then to draw a conclusion. But again, we can fall into what's called recency bias, and we can do this spiritually speaking as well. Isn't that true? Can't you do that spiritually speaking when thinking about God or thinking about his faithfulness or lack thereof you might be feeling in your life? Notice here in Psalm 77 how Asaph, the psalm writer, brings that to our attention. Look at verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has God in anger shut up his compassion? Asaph is wondering if his most recent experience with God, his latest interaction, which, if you hear him here, apparently is a disappointing experience, one where God seems absent and seems maybe even angry or unkind or forgetful, an experience or a situation where God seems disconnected or aloof, Asaph wonders, is this the new norm? 
Is this who God really is? Is this who I should expect God to be from here on out? Is God's most recent activity, or again, the lack thereof, or my interpretation of his activity, what's most true? You can hear this as Asaph wrestles with something in his life, some experience with God, some trial or some difficulty that perhaps is his bias now towards how God will always be. In fact, if you notice, for Asaph, it's a pressing question. It quite literally keeps him up at night. And again, we can follow that as well, can't we? Haven't there been times in our lives where we have had that experience? Well, we see it here with the psalm. He's literally kept up at night. Look at the preceding verses. Look at how the psalm began. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, all good things, but in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You, God, again, based on what he is seeing, based on what he is experiencing in his life, he's saying, you, God, hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. What's Asaph doing there? But he's comparing and considering what he's experiencing the moment to the glory days. Don't we do that? We long for the glory days, whatever those might be in our minds, and we compare them to what we're going through in the moment. But for Asaph, again, this is not some unemotional kind of theological calculation. He's not just trying to chart God's movement, you know, the way we would chart like a a storm, right? When a storm is in the Atlantic, you have the little X that moves all too slowly, and, and it, you chart the path of the storm, and you wonder, is it going to hit us? Is it going to you know, veer off the coast? But it's this kind of objective, just plotting of a movement, right? You know, that's not happening here. He's not just objectively and unemotionally plotting God's activity. Oh, God used to do this, but now he's doing this. And, you know, the, the barometric pressure of God's grace seems to be dropping or, or rising. You know, it's not this unemotional calculation, but if you notice, it's visceral for Asaph. It's very emotional. It's very personal. He cries, it says. He seeks. He refuses to be comforted. Again, because he looks at the present, the world around him, his personal experiences, the surrounding culture, the news headlines, and he begins to wonder, maybe, just maybe, God has changed. God has hung it up. God used to do a lot of stuff for his people here, but not so much anymore. To go back to our opening word picture, Asaph is leaning a bit too much on the closing argument of the prosecuting attorney for the world, the evil one, the accuser, the one who wants you to see the chaos around you, the moral decay around you, the injustice toward the innocent, and then to conclude, God must be guilty of forsaking his people. God must be guilty of forgetting us. Instead of considering the whole picture, 
the larger case for the defense of God and his ever-present plans and purposes for our good, his faithfulness to his people throughout the course of history, throughout the changing seasons of history. Again, to go back to our opening word picture, Asaph is beginning to wonder if just maybe God is losing his fastball. If you're a baseball fan, and you know I am. (laughs) Sorry, it comes up in almost every sermon, right? But you begin to wonder, and it's a joke, but it's helpful. Just maybe God is losing his fastball. That's what commentators will say of aging pitchers. He used to throw 97 with movement, but now it's 92 and it's flat. It's declining. He's lost the feel for his breaking ball. He no longer has command of the strike zone, and he's about to be out of the game. Maybe you should trade him in. Maybe you should move on. You'd be best to trade God for something more useful. The question is, have we ever felt that way? Again, based on what we see, based on what's happening around us, have we ever felt this way? Have we ever asked ourselves if the Lord will spurn us forever? Have we ever wondered if his steadfast love is maybe not so steadfast, his promises not so permanent? Again, maybe God has forgotten how to throw his best pitch. In fact, there in verse 9, he says it. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in anger, shut up his compassion? If we feel that way, if we feel that way, chances are the litmus test for our evaluation is the immediate present. Isn't that so? The recency bias of a newfound difficulty or hardship. The accusations and arguments from the latest secular talking head. The echo chamber of a world hell-bent on erasing God. Or if they can't do that, they can at least smear his reputation. It's something, again, that makes us feel that way and ask ourselves these questions. And when that happens, then, the answer is, or the question is, what do we do? If we find ourselves feeling that way, what exactly should we do? And the answer here, again, as it's found in Psalm 77, is that we should look and consider the bigger picture. We should look and consider the bigger picture. We should draw conclusions about God and build our hope in the future as much from God's actions in the past as those in the present. And again, we see that. Uh, Look at verses, uh, beginning of verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Not just a day or an hour or a 24-hour news cycle, but I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. If your way, O God, is holy, What God is great like our God, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Again, so much of our discouragement, so much of our feelings of despair, so much of our doubts even, are rooted 
in these momentary afflictions, these temporary situations, these recent episodes, again, perhaps a recent lost job, a recent 24-hour news cycle, a recent rough patch with a loved one. And again, it's not to say we shouldn't feel the weight of those things. If we've learned anything in our time from the Psalms, it's that we have a license to feel greatly about those things, to feel a whole range of emotions. Psalms is the, is the great book that gives us license to not be have it all together, plastic smile, Christians, stoic Christians, but to feel, to feel deeply and to bring those feelings before God. But again, Psalm 77 reminds us that what we feel about God ultimately, what we conclude about God ultimately can only happen accurately when we consider all his works, the whole picture, even providentially, sometimes what we think is inactivity actually behind it in the counsel of God, in the mind of God, is a working for our good, is a working out his purposes in our lives. And again, we meditate on that rather than what's in front of us, we begin to feel our hearts changing. Again, sample size comes into play here. If we are constantly feeding on the constant stream of bad news from the world, if we are only feeding on the constant stream of even bad news which comes from our own heads, our own doubts, our own accusations, our own regrets in our lives, our own remorse over our sin, whatever it it might be, then it's no wonder that we reap what we sow, which is this feeling of discouragement and despair. But if we overwhelm that with a greater diet of what God has done, if you will, feasting on the pages of Scripture more so than the pages of the latest news cycle, again, then we can be reminded and immersed in the stories of God, not just the stories of the world, where they want to write God off and say he's not here anymore. We find ourselves immersed in the stories where God is present and has shown up again, oftentimes miraculously for his people, never leaving them or forsaking them. Again, Asaph reminds himself to look and consider the bigger picture of God, to draw conclusions about God and build his hope in the future, as much from God's actions in the past as his actions, or maybe inaction, we feel, in the present. And what did you notice is the story that he goes to to console his heart. What's the story? If you look there, beginning at verse 15 through 20, it's the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus. You, with your arm, verse 15, redeem your people. When the waters saw you, O God, verse 16, they were afraid. The deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. 
Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Notice how helpful that is. As Asaph considers his own plight, a plight which, again, apparently felt like the absence and abandonment of God, a season where he wondered if God had forgotten him, where all seemed lost. Did you notice that he directs his mind toward that quintessential place in the Old Testament where the people of God would have felt exactly the same way? Do you think in their 400 years in Egypt, the people of God asked themselves similar questions? Felt similar ways? Wondered where God was? Of course they did. And yet in that moment and in that time, when the deck was stacked against them and the deck was stacked against even God himself, it seemed, how did he respond? Of course, God responds with the power and grace that he always has, which always characterizes his ways, if we would just look up and remember. And you see that here with Asaph. Again, he looks up from his own predicament, his own navel-gazing, and again remembers the exodus, that great display of God on behalf of his weary people. And the beautiful thing for us is that as Christians, we have an even more vivid example to look for. When we're tempted to believe that God has forgotten us, when we're tempted to believe that he has shut up his compassion, he has lost the fastball of his grace, if you will, we can appeal to the cross of Christ. We can appeal to that greater exodus where he leads his people out from the slavery of sin and death, where he overwhelms our sin with the sea of his grace. We can appeal to the cross. We can appeal to those, again, who would have felt that all was lost, that God had forgotten them those three days leading up to the empty tomb of Jesus, and we can appeal to that and again be reminded of that signaling of his victory. Reminded that from that point on, again at the cross, and then three days later at the empty tomb, from that point on, everything had changed. Everything sad was coming untrue. Everything was beginning to be made new. That's where we look. We don't look in our momentary affliction. We don't look in our season of life. But we bring those things rather to the God who stands above history and who is faithful in and through the different seasons and has signaled that faithfulness again at the cross of Calvary. Paul writes, and I say it all the time because I need to hear it, perhaps more than anybody here. If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us willingly, then will he not along with him give us all things? You see, we look up. We don't fall into spiritual recency bias, but we look up and we consider the whole picture We don't fall into the changing seasons of of life, even our changing feelings. But we look to that objective 
day in history. We looked at that objective work of God at the cross, the unchanging indication, the unchanging reminder that God's grace is steadfast, that God does not forget his people. Again, the antidote to inconsistency is to fix our eyes firmly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to fix our eyes on that moment where his love and his mercy were cemented for all time. Again, at the cross of Christ. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people. That's our hope. We might change, the seasons might change, but he remains, and our hope is founded and fixed on that timeless grace of God the one who never forgets us, who never leaves us or forsakes us, but is with us even this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the overwhelming picture of who you are. Thank you, Lord, that we can look at the pages of Scripture. We can rehearse the stories of the saints and be reminded of your faithfulness. Lord, we are part of that story. We are part of the fabric of redemption which you are weaving, and yet we can sometimes over-elevate our own experience and forget all that's gone before. And so, God, would you help us, I pray, to trust you in the future, to trust you even for the day before us, the week before us, the months and years before us because of your faithfulness in the past, because you are unchanging, because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Father, thank you for being that one who does redeem your people with your mighty arm. May you continue to lead us by the hand, we pray because you are Emmanuel, God with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.